This message by Pastor Alexander Ruggieri was delivered at Faith Fellowship Church in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. For more information, please call 608-935-2655 or visit us at www.dodgevilleffc.com. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I love that hymn. It's a beautiful hymn that speaks of the spiritual warfare that we do engage in that is real. And that warfare manifests itself in our lives in different ways, through the different circumstances that we go through, through the different changes in society that we see. There's a spiritual battle. We have enemies. We have um, fellow spiritual beings that are on the side of truth. We have angelic hosts that are fighting. There's a real battle that we are engaged in. The title of this message is called Resist the Devil. It comes from just one verse that we're going to focus on in particular in James chapter 4. I encourage you to follow along and see this for yourself. As I was reading through this passage, it just this passage just jumped out to me because it was so simple. In James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'd like to say that again and have everyone just latch on to these words. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's so simple, but it's so profound. It encapsulates so many different things. So we're going to unpack this a little bit this morning. You see, we have an enemy, the prince of darkness, Grim. And the enemy is the devil and all of his army that we call demonic uh, hosts in the spiritual realm of darkness. The devil's design and desire is to deceive and destroy your life, the lives of unbelievers. And unfortunately, we as Christians don't give much thought to our enemy. Or we tend to think of him as just a theological concept. And it ends up being out of sight, out of mind. And we let our guard down when it comes to our enemy. 
And I know this is true for myself and it's true for you. When we let our guard down, we let our God down. Because if we let our guard down, we let the enemy in. Do you think Satan's just going to leave us alone if we don't think about him? And we don't fight this spiritual battle? I tell you, no. Do we think that Satan is just going to leave our church alone? We've got a good thing going on here. He's just going to leave us alone. You think he's going to leave you as an individual Christian in your walk with Christ alone? You think he's just going to leave your, your relationships alone? You think he's just going to leave your health alone? He's going to leave your finances alone? He just won't go there? I tell you, no. He's going to come and He's going to try to interfere and draw your life and my life away from God. Satan, either Satan himself or as he sends his, his, those underneath him into this world to, to attack us, he's going to send the demonic forces into your life to try to get you away from God, to draw you away from God. To make you think less about God. To make you live less like God. To make you believe lies about His Word. To make you doubt those truths that have saved you. Those truths that have been the foundation of your life. He's going to make you, or, or try to make you, to doubt them. He's going to assign creatures to you. And if we do not resist Him, He's going to persist on us. If we do not resist, He is going to persist. And we're told in the Bible, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's amazing. Now obviously... The Bible means that he will flee for a time. It's not like we resist him once, he'll never come again. But there is this promise that we have, under the authority of the Word of God, the ability to resist the devil, if we know him as our Lord and Savior. And we'd like to look at that. So this morning we're going to look at four strategies to resist the devil. Four strategies to resist the devil. And if you follow these strategies, and if I follow these strategies, we will be able, by the grace of God, to overcome temptation. We will be more equipped to follow God. We will actually see change in our circumstances because the demonic power that has been released in our lives, that has been exercised in our lives, will be able to be done away with to a certain degree. And so if we follow these four strategies, resisting the devil, we will see victory in our lives. We will have more of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength in our lives. Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the first strategy I'd like to bring up to you this morning, found in this text, is address your enemy. This is the first strategy. Address your enemy. 
unless you're able to address the enemy, you won't be able to resist him because there won't be an enemy to resist. You must know who it is that you're dealing with when it comes to resisting him. You must be able to name it, whatever the problem is, be able to point to it and say, this is the issue I'm going to address. You see, James, when he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is saying that there is an enemy. He is addressing the enemy. He says, resist the devil. He names him. He calls him out. He addresses him. The Bible calls the devil Satan, son of the morning, tempter, prince of demons, father of lies, Beelzebub, the evil one, enemy, liar, father of lies, murderer, ruler of this world, God of this age, Belial, prince of the power of the air, adversary, dragon, serpent, accuser of the brethren. He's the devil. He's our enemy. And wouldn't it be a strategy of the devil to try to get people to stop thinking about him? Wouldn't it be a strategy of the devil to think different things about him than who he really is? You know, in uh, in progressive Christianity, that is Christianity that has rejected the word of God as God's authoritative, infallible, inerrant word, Christianity that has embraced a lot of this ungodly, liberal theology in our day and age, this, this progressive Christianity has, has their own story of who the devil is. They claim that the devil is not a real person. He's not like an actual person that exists. The devil in the Bible is just a personification of all the, the difficulties in this world. He's just a, a picture of all the, the inner struggles that we struggle with. This one Episcopal priest, Kevin J. Thu Forrester, who's a contributor to ProgressiveChristianity.org, says, Contrary to popular mythology and fundamentalist theology, in biblical sources, the Hebrew term the Satan describes an adversarial role. It is not the name of a particular character. Wouldn't that be exactly what Satan would want? You know, he, he probably can't get rid of his, his, his name from the Bible and of Christianity completely. And so wouldn't it be his strategy to just think, to have people think of him as not an actual uh, a person force who can make, has a will and has desires and can make choices and, and individually involve himself? In the, wouldn't it be Satan's strategy to just Think of himself, have you think of him as just a, a, a type, a picture of bad things in the world. That would be his strategy. And that's what people believe. But it is a devilish theology. The Bible is clear that Satan is a person. He has he uses personal pronouns. The Lord speaks to Satan in the book of Job. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says that Satan has intelligence, as Paul says, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Uh, the Bible says that Satan has desires. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Bible says that the devil's hungry. 
Obviously not for food. He's hungry for you to forsake, to disbelieve our God. Satan is not a personification. He is a person. He has ambitions and intentions to draw your life and my life away from God. And if you want to resist him, you need to address your enemy. So the question is, where is the enemy in your life? If you and I are going to address the enemy, if we're going to resist the devil and we have to address him, we have to ask ourselves, where is our enemy in, the li- in our lives? Where has he infiltrated into your life? Where is he at work in your circumstances? It's time we call him out. Has he got his hold on your relationships? Has he got a hold on your mind so that you're thinking ungodly thoughts? Does he have a hold on your credit card? Does he have a hold on your health? Does he have a hold on your finances? Does he have a hold on your TV remote? Does he have a hold on your device in your pocket right now? Does he have a hold on that computer screen that you watch? Does he have a hold on the things you wear? If we're going to resist him, we need to ask ourselves, where is he infiltrated? Where is he at work? Satan isn't going to leave us alone. He's going to find an area that he can come in. And the first step to resisting him is to address the enemy. And I can guarantee, I can guarantee if you want to know and if I want to know, if, if we want to know, if Satan has a place in our lives, whether directly himself or through some hired hand, if he has a place in our lives, I can ask you this question. If you are here this morning, and you, on a regular basis, do not desire to nourish and cultivate and, and grow in your relationship with God, if you can be honest with yourself, And look in the mirror and say that I, in my regular everyday life, when I leave this place and I go home and I do my thing, in my regular everyday life, I can honestly say that I do not desire to be with God in prayer. That I do not desire to read God's Word. That I do not desire to be used in God's kingdom, to do God's work. If that is an overarching theme of your life, I can guarantee the devil has his hand on you. And maybe you're okay with that. Maybe that's a comfortable life for you. But I know if God has made you regenerate, has placed His Holy Spirit inside of you, and you are born again, that doesn't sit well with you. And that bothers you. And the encouragement for you and for me is that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. But we need to first address him. We need to call him out of the closet. We need to see Satan come out. 
I'm done with you taking that place in my life. Get him out in the open. Say a confrontation needs to be made in my heart, in my life, in my mind. Satan, come on out. Address your enemy. That's the first strategy. The second strategy that we see in our text, not only address your enemy, but acknowledge your identity. Acknowledge your identity. So you've called him out. He's there. It's now time to acknowledge your identity. Because what Satan's going to want to do is he's going to want to lay claim over your life. He's going to want to justify his right to exercise power in your life. Now, I'd like you to look at something beautiful in this passage. I call it the beautiful bracket, okay? It's a beautiful bracket. Look at the text, if you will. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then there's this beautiful bracket. What is a bracket? Well, it's a, there's an open bracket and then there's a closed bracket. And there's something on either side of the bracket. If you look in the text, the Bible says... In front, in front of the open bracket where it says, resist the devil, the Bible says, submit to God. Submit to God. And then there's the open bracket, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Close bracket. And at the end of the bracket, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a beautiful bracket because what it's telling us is that in in between this command to resist the devil, he will flee from you, is God on either side. At the beginning, it says, submit to God. At the end, it says, draw near to God. What the Bible is saying is that your identity as a believer, as a born-again Christian, is that of God's. And so you have the power, ability, you have the right as a child of God to draw near to Him, to submit to Him, to identify yourself with Him so that you can resist the enemy in your life. Acknowledge your identity, you see. We live in a day and age of identity politics. You bring up this concept of identity and a lot of things come to mind. When you became a Christian... Your identity changed, okay? Now, when you ask a person in this culture right now about their identity, they might say something like, oh, I identify as fill in the blank. And the common experience is is that these young people are being told in these schools that they can identify as a man or a woman independent of who they actually are made to be. And so you'll have a man, a young man, who is... Through and through, a young man, and he says, oh, I identify as a woman. But the fact of the matter is, he's a man. God made him a man. Every single cell in his body screams that he's a man. And whatever he thinks in his mind has no relation to exactly who God made him to be. Or the opposite is true, a a young woman that God has created as a woman for womanhood to be a beautiful woman saying, I'm going to identify as a man. But just because they identify as something doesn't change who they are. But this is different. You see, when when you became a Christian, when you became born again, your literal makeup changed. 
There was a literal, literal transformation. It wasn't just like a transgender identify. It was a literal transformation in your life. Look at, if you will, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 talks about how there was a transfer of your identity. In Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 12 that we, Paul is going through different things that we can do and, and praise God for. In verse 12, we can give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And look at verse 13 here. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. I like the way the NIV puts it. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of His love. See, there's just one example where your identity before you became a Christian was with the devil in the dominion of darkness. But when you, when you trusted in Jesus Christ for your Savior, your identity changed and you became a child of the King in the kingdom of the Son, in the kingdom of light. The Bible says elsewhere, watch this, the Bible says elsewhere that at one point you were a child of the devil. You trusted in Jesus and now you are a child of God. The Bible says at one point that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the Bible says when you trust in Jesus that you are alive unto righteousness. The Bible says at one point that you were a servant of the God of this age, small g, and then when you trust in Christ, repentance and faith, you become a child, a servant of the God of the universe, the one true God, big G. At one point you were dead, now you are alive. At one point you were of the dominion of darkness, and now you are in the kingdom of light. At one point you were a child of the devil, now you are a child of God. At one point you were a servant of the God, small g, now you are a servant of a God, big G. At one point you were blind, now you can see. At one point you were lost, now you're found in amazing grace. That's your identity. Now, Satan is going to come to you, when you address him and he's going to say, I want you to do this sin. He'll tempt you. And he'll plant in your mind, well, you're still, you got that sin nature. You still, you still should do that because that's that old man, right? And the Bible does tell us, yeah, the old man is there until glorification. We're in the process of sanctification. There's that mystery. But we are promised, we are promised in the day of temptation that God will provide a way of escape that we can take it. And we are told that our old man is dead. And the only way the old man becomes alive is if we resurrect him. And if we believe Satan and say, oh, I must still be identified with you, so I should do the sin. You see, you need to realize that the devil has no claim over your life anymore. So when you address your enemy, when you get him out there in the open, and he says to you, you know, you, you should still do what I ask, you say, no, I am no longer associated with you. 
I have submitted to God. I am drawn near to God. I am safe. Address your enemy. Acknowledge your identity. It's just like the child that is in an abusive, uh, with abusive parents and, and the and they step in and they take the child out of that situation and they put in a foster care situation and the child is then adopted by loving parents who care for them. And those biological parents may come and they may say, you know, you need to come home, you're my child. But the child can say, no, you're not my parents anymore. I've been adopted. You have no right over my life. And that's the same with the devil. He can come in and say, you know, you are, you are my child. I still want you to be involved in my life. I still have things for you to do. And you say, no, I have been adopted by my heavenly father. I am a part of his family. I do not identify with you anymore. And so in a, in a, I don't mean this in a proud way. In a sense, when Satan comes to you with a temptation, you can literally say to Satan, that's beneath me. Not because you have it in yourself or because you are, you know, propping yourself up or pulling yourself by your bootstraps, but because God is your father and you're his child, part of his family. And so you can claim that identity and say, no, Satan, that's beneath me. You could actually say to the evil one, no, that is beneath me. As Jesus in the wilderness said, no, Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Acknowledge your identity. Third strategy. So you get him out in the open. You acknowledge your identity as a believer, as a Christian. The third strategy is to assert your authority. Assert your authority. Look there in James. The Bible says, submit to God. And then it says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. This is you asserting your authority that God has given you. Resist the devil. Now, when I first read that verse, uh, when I first read that word resist, I got a picture in my mind of the devil's just coming hard on you. He's just coming hard and attacking you and he's pressing down on you and you're just pushing back and resisting and trying to push back. That's not what the word means. The word resist is in ancient Greek a military term. It means to take a firm stand against. It means the battle line is drawn and you are standing your ground. It means that Satan is going to approach you and try to bring you down and infect your life and you resist. You take a stand, you put your foot down. And you affirm, uh, excuse me, you assert your authority. God is saying you have the right under the authority I give you, to put your foot down in front of your enemy and resist him. You can stand your ground and say, you do not have authority to do this in my life. I have authority from Almighty God to say no. I want you as a believer 
And I want me as a believer to really grab hold of the authority that God has given us over the evil one. Because we get in our minds the idea that he's this all-powerful being that can, that can exercise power over us. But when we take our eyes off of him and put our eyes on our King of Kings and Lord of Lords and realize that he has given us the power and he has given us the identity and he has given us the authority to take a stand against our evil one, we will have victory in our lives. Our churches will thrive in the community. Our lives will be changed because Satan will be, will flee. Assert your authority. How, I, I don't know, I like the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings. There are some in here who are so much more dedicated to it than I am. But I enjoy these films and I love that one scene. And some of you know where I'm going. There's this one scene where the, the, the group, the hobbits and the, and, and the different people they're coming out of, I don't even know what it's called, you know, the, the, the dwarf place, okay, the caves with the dwarves, and they're coming out and they're running away from this beastly creature, this giant, massive, beastly creature with big horns, breathing fire, a big whip, and they're running along and they come a, across this rock bridge, that's very narrow, very flimsy, very thin, and they cross the bridge. And this one character, Gandalf, who's this old man with a staff, they cross the bridge, and he turns around. And that fire-breathing beast, mighty giant, comes storming to them. And he looks at that beast, and he says, You shall not pass. And the, the beast you can almost see is like mocking, like laughing. Who do you think you are, you little man? And he steps forward and then Gandalf takes that staff and in that moment he pushes it down and he says, you shall not pass. And he, when he pushes it down in the bridge, it cracks and the bridge cracks underneath the beast's feet. And the Bible is telling you and telling me, yeah, on the outward appearance, we may look flimsy and we may look weak. And when we stand before our enemy in those battles, we look like it's Goliath and David. But when we take the staff of God and we place it down by faith and we assert our authority that he has given us. And we say, I resist you. The Bible says what's going to happen, which is the fourth strategy Affirm your victory. You see, when you address your enemy, when you acknowledge your identity, when you assert your authority that God has given you, you can affirm your victory. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not hopefully you will win. Not you have a good chance of beating him. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is a promise from Almighty God to you. And I love, I love the choice of the word flee. That word flee in the Bible means to vanish, to escape. In some places, it means to seek safety by flight. 
For example, when Jesus is giving that Olivet Discourse and he, and he turns and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, flee to the mountains. It's the same word. And it's almost like the picture is given that if you assert your authority and you claim the promise of God to resist the devil in your life, he will flee from you in the same sense that you are to flee to the mountains. He will flee from you. It's almost like this picture of like a dog with its tail tucked between its legs. And it seems unreal for us to think of this. But that's what the Bible is promising. He's saying he will flee from you. Why is the devil going to flee from you? I mean, who are you? You're nobody. You don't have innate power and ability. Is because behind you, as you stand there by faith, the beautiful bracket is there. Almighty God, you have submitted to. You draw near to Almighty God. And in the day when you stand before the devil, when the day of temptation comes, when the battle line is drawn, when you are addressing the area that Satan has on your life, you stand there by faith in the power of Almighty God, and Satan cannot stand that. Satan cannot stand that. And the Bible says he will flee. You will have victory. Not a victory that you have wrought on your own, but a victory that God has promised you. Like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that he won't come back. It doesn't mean he won't regroup and try to come up with a different strategy. But it does mean what it says. And what does it say? Resist the devil and he will what? Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. If you address him in the areas of your life that he is coming in, and you know he's there, and you know he's, he's tempting you in these areas, you can have victory. You can resist the devil. And we all know when David stands before Goliath on that battle line, and the picture is so beautiful, David is there, he's little David, he's got no weapons except a little sling, and he's standing before a nine-foot tall man who's got a giant spear and a sword, and he says to him, he, he does everything. He acknowledges the enemy. He acknowledges his identity. He asserts his authority, and he affirms his victory when he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you. I will take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. And God gave him victory. Brothers and sisters, we have an adversary, but if you address him, if you acknowledge who you are in Jesus Christ, if you assert the authority he has given you, and you take your stand and resist him, and if you affirm by faith that God has promised that if you Claim His power, the devil will flee from you. You will have victory in your life as a believer. You will be able to overcome temptation. 
And if you stumble and fall, you can, as we all do, you can ask God for the grace and strength when the next battle comes to fight. But this is a promise to you. And this is a promise to me. And I'd like to close with an illustration. Last winter, for this this construction company that I work for, we were doing a job outside of Reed's, uh, excuse me, it was near Bellevue. It was an hour and 45 minutes. It was very cold. And during the lunch break, we had about an hour lunch break, we would go inside this one guy's shop. He had a heated shop on the property. We were building him a shed that had burned down. And inside the shop was all these different antiques and paraphernalia. He was a big Elvis fan. And they had a TV there. And during the lunch break, my Amish co-workers wanted to watch TV, which is interesting. And so they turned on the TV, and the show that came on was this program, um, I forget what it was called, something about cold cases. Uh, I'm sure you've seen them. I, I actually enjoy the idea of, of, you know, finding the bad guy. And Well, this cold case was between this man and woman, uh, Paul and Linda Curry. And apparently, this Paul and Linda met, they were working at a... a a corporation that did engineer work. He was an engineer. She worked in administration, I think, and they met. He was 32. He had he was a brilliant man. He had been on Jeopardy twice. She was 45. They met. They had a good friendship. They hit it off pretty well, and they got married. Linda and Paul Curry, and people looked at them and said that they loved each other. And Paul would loved Linda so much that he would... He would make meals for her. He, he was uh, creative. He'd create these different salad dressings. Well, months after they got married, they both got sick. Very sick. Their health started declining. They had gastrointestinal issues. And they got worse. And it got worse. And they couldn't find the cause. They go to the doctor. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Paul got better. Belinda didn't. She kept getting worse, and she kept getting worse, and she kept getting worse. She'd go to the hospital, and they'd give her IVs, and she'd get worse. They'd send her to another hospital, and they would give her, this is months after they got married, she would get worse, and they couldn't figure it out. And that's when authorities started getting involved and wondering, is something strange going on here? And they they asked Linda, they said, Linda, if there was somebody in your life that was doing something to you, that would be causing this, who would it be? And she said, the only person who would do something like this is Paul, but I couldn't even think of it. I love him. And Paul would express his love, and he couldn't think of of it if they asked him of doing such a thing. But she got worse, and she got worse, and she got worse. Some of her friends would say to her, I think Paul is doing this to you. And she would say, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And the day finally came when Linda Curry was... She died. And they couldn't figure out what happened, so the case just got dropped and it went lied dormant. But then it got picked up again years later. And they found out that one of Linda's friends went into the curry house at some point in her sickness 
and went into Paul's office and found on his desk there were all these different life insurance policies on the desk. And they found out that Paul, immediately after they had gotten married, Paul and Linda got married, had asked Linda to take out a million-dollar life insurance policy. And when they looked at Linda's body, when they did an autopsy, they found they, they looked at her chemical makeup, and they found out that the cause of death of Linda was nicotine poisoning. She died from an overdose of nicotine. But Linda and Paul didn't smoke. And they saw that behind her ear was a little mark from a syringe. And long story short, what had happened is that Paul married Linda with the intention of taking these life insurance policies and killing her. Paul was a brilliant man. He would somehow get a hold of nicotine, extracting it from cigarettes, however, I forget, and he would mix it in with their food. He made these salad dressings, and he would mix it in, and he would eat it himself, and he would get sick, as if to give the idea that it wouldn't be him. But at some point, he had to stop, and he kept doing it to her. While Paul said to her how much he loved her, how much he cared for her, he was slipping nicotine into her food. She'd go to the hospital, he'd go to visit her, he'd put poison in her IV bag. She got transferred to another hospital, he'd go there, he'd put poison in that IV bag. And the day finally came when he would give her sleeping pills so that she's knocked out and inject in her head a lethal dose of nicotine and she died. And if Linda had just heard the warnings of her friends, of the authorities, of the people in her life, she would have realized that the guy she thought loved her so, wanted her dead. Brothers and sisters, you and I have an enemy. And for the most part, the world thinks that what he has to offer is for our good. But we as Christians fall into that trap too, don't we? Oftentimes, what Satan brings to us is not some deplorable picture of a, a creature with pitchforks and, and horns. It's often something we find pleasurable. Often something that we think is, is good for us. But we need to realize that our enemy is poisoning us if we let him. Unlike Linda, you and I according to the Word of God, have the ability to resist our enemy. To say, you know what, Paul? I don't care what you say. You are harming me, and I am resisting you. You and I have the power to resist the devil, and the promise is, he will flee from you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I pray, if there is anyone here this morning who has not been born again, who has not become your child and is still, in a sense, married to Paul Curry, is still under his domain of darkness, I pray, Father God, you'd speak to their heart now. I pray, Father God, that you would show them that they need your forgiveness, that they have sinned against you, that they need a change.
Father God, You sent Jesus to die for their sins, to take the punishment they deserved, to give a life that they don't deserve. You died that they may have life. I pray, Father God, You would speak to them and that they would see their need for You. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. They cannot earn it. They can't make themselves changed. They need to ask You to change them. Ask You to forgive them. Ask You to come into their heart and be their Lord and Savior. I pray, Father God, they would call upon You. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And for Father God, for all of us, I pray that we in our own lives would assess our lives and see where our enemy is trying to infiltrate, where he is trying to work. And I pray, Father God, upon your authority, we would resist it, knowing that he will flee from us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.